Robin Puglia is a clinical nutritionist, IFM certified and very involved in the field of celiac disease, gluten reactive disorders, and has a penchant for autoimmune conditions. Her passion for biochemistry and deep conviction regarding the healing power of food and lifestyle change has led her to set up her own practice now, working on more complex cases, sometimes the things that you can't quite put a name to. I'm really interested, uh, Robin, chatting today. Actually, to start with, I was, I was having a welcome to the podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. Um, I was chatting with a friend uh, last night who uh, runs a um, like a fine dining uh, restaurant and he was tearing his hair out because um, it's top end food. It's very expensive and he's really struggling because um, people are turning up to his restaurant and he's going to take the order or his staff are. There's a relatively kind of set me menu in what they're doing. And the waiter is coming back and saying, right, I've got five people that are dairy intolerant. I've got six people that don't want to eat gluten. And he said it's becoming almost impossible to kind of cook. So I know we're going to move off in the direction of kind of more complex things. But I, I'm, I'm interested on, on your kind of position just from a general kind of dietary intake. So many people now are, are, are removing foods from their diet before perhaps there is kind of like clinical presentations of of, of, of issues with certain things. What, what is, is your take on that? Are we, should we I'm be just, getting these inflammatory things out of the diet? Yeah, so I've got two things to say about that. So number one, um, to your chef friend, and I don't mean any uh, insult here, but it is really possible to cook brilliant, delicious gourmet food without gluten and without dairy. And if he is noticing that there is a demand for it, because that's what I'm hearing you saying, then perhaps he should be listening to the people who are eating at his restaurant and creating a menu that actually serves them instead of trying to manipulate the menu on site to fit the people who are actually sitting, sitting down and ordering. So maybe some more thinking around what's on offer could be... Well I, I think there. I think that's a really interesting one. And I think that what is it interesting now? I know quite a few people and I, I actually I worked on a podcast before this, which was very much around kind of fine food. And I think when you get to the kind of top end of food, when we're talking about like Michelin food, mm -hmm. it's like uh, it's like a singing competition. Right. There is mm -hmm. just a set standard to kind of hit and removing mm -hmm. ingredients is like taking out chords yeah, you know? but removing, so, it's not about removing ingredients. It's about choosing the ingredients um, that are just naturally gluten-free, naturally dairy-free and working with – it is definitely possible to have extremely high-quality food that doesn't involve wheat. Um, you just have to know how to work with vegetables and how to know how to work with fats. It's chemistry, right? Food at cooking at that level is chemistry. And if we think about food all around the world – there is millions of ingredients to choose from, herbs and spices and different types of grains and um, different types of fats and oils and seeds. And, you know, it's, it's really just about creativity and chemistry because food is the intersection between those two things at the end of the day. So that, but my, that's my first point. I think it's possible to have a really excellent menu that is gluten-free, dairy-free, or that at least has good options in both camps so that the waiter can be less frustrated. But the second thing to answer your question is um, I don't believe that everybody does need to be gluten-free and I don't believe that everybody does need to be dairy-free. Um, I think that 
from me in my research <clears throat> and in my clinical experience, I think that that number is probably around 20% of the population that does respond. Now, 20% of the population is a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is the different types of reaction that we can be having to gluten and the different types of reaction that we can be having to dairy, if it's permanent and lifelong or if it's temporary and we can work around it. Um, and for the rest of the population and for those people that are dealing with inflammation and chronic inflammatory conditions, that doesn't necessarily mean that you do need to be gluten and dairy free, but it does mean that you need to be picky about the gluten and the dairy that you do eat, because there is a really big difference between, um, you know, supermarket bread and, um, <clears throat> organic fermented, uh, you know, ancient grain sourdough bread, right? There's, and those are two ends of the spectrum and there is a spectrum in between that as well. But there is a difference between organic whole grains, organic food that has been grown well in healthy soil with good farming practices. Um, and same thing with dairy, you know, um, good quality dairy from happy cows. There's a difference between um, A1 casein and uh, other types of casein. There's a difference between dairy from cow, sheep and goats. Um, and what the animal eats will determine what the quality of the milk is and so on and so forth. So, you know, those things will also affect people's responses and people's reactions and whether or not they can be included. There's a lot of nutrition to be had. And if we're talking about the gut, just for example, they have shown, the medical literature does tell us that um, because of the fructans and the prebiotics in wheat, people whose immune systems tolerate the wheat um, who are eating good quality, healthy forms of wheat will have a more diverse, better microbiome as a result of that. So gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, um, you know, has definitely got a fairly well-deserved reputation, but it's a, it's a lot of, a lot of gray area in that. Is it the gluten, is, which is, would be an immune mediated reaction? Is it the prebiotics, which, be, which would be a microbial mediated reaction? You know, there's a lot of things in wheat that you can react to, and there's a lot of different ways to react to it. So I think it's really great that people are paying attention um, and that people are joining the dots between what they eat and how they feel. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then it's also a little bit more complicated than that as well. You know, if we're saying, you know, let's say that it, it's it's 80-20, there's 20% of the population that, that really should just avoid gluten and we'll, we'll, we can go more into into those reasons. But let, let's kind of think about the, the other kind of, how how does someone understand whether so so there'll be somebody listening to this right that maybe has ibs or they react certain way to certain foods um how do they know which camp they sit in you know because that's that's a that's a tricky one to understand and you know am i in the 20 percent or am i in the in the remaining 80. so there's a few different ways to go about that so the first is to understand your symptoms um, so understanding whether or not you are having gut symptoms or what we call extra intestinal symptoms, which means symptoms in the rest of the body. Um, understanding uh, if there's, you know, if we're looking at the Venn diagram, because you can have both, you can have immune mediated symptoms and also gut mediated symptoms. So if we, somebody with IBS is 
most likely simply by the category of them having irritable bowel syndrome, likely to be experiencing a constellation of gut symptoms, constipation, diarrhea, pain, bloating, distension, that kind of thing. So gut symptoms are usually mediated by the gut environment, which would either be digestive, the digestive tract, your stomach acid, your digestive enzymes, your bile, or um, by the microbes in the gut. So the microbes in the gut, um, so when humans eat food, we create stool and urine. Um, but when the microbes in our gut eat our food, they also are creating their own versions of stool or urine, and we call these microbial metabolites. And the microbial metabolite determines whether or not that bacteria is beneficial or problematic or neutral. So the, our gut bacteria makes these metabolites which are helpful for us. They process our B vitamins, they process our resveratrol and our curcumin into things that the body can use to their benefit. They make things like short-chain fatty acids such as butyrate, which calm down neurological inflammation and help our immune system tolerate things and are really important messengers. There's lots of benefits. But an unhealthy gut or um, an imbalance of the wrong kind of bacteria will create um, toxic or problematic microbial metabolites. And you may have heard of some of those things like hydrogen sulfide and methane and hydrogen, which are really associated with that kind of SIBO. Um, But there's actually a lot of them and they have names like putrescine and cadaverine and they can make alcohol and they can make histamine and um, octopamine and there's a really big range of um, negative and problematic microbial metabolites that can be made and they can create a range of symptoms that are associated with IBS so there's a strong overlap between IBS and SIBO Um, or other gut-mediated symptoms. However, and here is where it gets complicated, is those microbial metabolites, things like um, D-lactic acid, can also cause headaches. Histamine can cause skin rashes. Tryptamine can cause migraines. So the microbial metabolites can also create systemic symptoms. I think what's really interesting about that is that the rea- the reactions that are going on here, and we're going to get onto this a little bit later, but, you know, in a, in a kind of Western system, we really want a label on something, right? We want to be able to go to the doctor and the doctor be able to say, right, that is eczema, that is cluster mm-hmm. headaches, that is uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. Like, we find that helpful because when we have a label, then we're able to kind of understand what we're kind of dealing with. But when you talk about it on this kind of nuanced layer, people that are feeling unwell, it is so much more nuanced than just saying it is this, right? Yeah, so functional medicine, so conventional medicine has a has a way of processing information. So basically we're looking to, to label it. So we want a diagnosis. And then once we've got the diagnosis, then we have a tool in the toolkit. So with conventional medicine, that tool is usually either a prescription medicine or a surgery. But functional medicine um, is looking to understand why is this happening? So even if you have a diagnosis, 
um, the diagnosis tells you it's a description of what's going on. So the diagnosis of IBS, for example, tells us that you have irritable bowel um, and that you are experiencing more than one of a constellation of specific symptoms that fit that diagnosis for that category. So functional medicine then seeks to understand why is that happening? What's caused that? What is upstream of that? Um, what has gone wrong in the way that health um, occurs in the body that has led to this dysfunction of this system or this dysfunction of this organ. So with the gut specifically, we're just trying to understand why is this happening as opposed to just what can we do to suppress the symptoms and how do we dampen down the end stage of that. So it's it's looking at the spectrum of health a little bit differently, working upstream, because the, the more that we can understand why it's occurring, then we can work to support the body so that we can correct that underlying dysfunction so that hopefully that problem just isn't happening anymore. And then you don't need management of the symptoms because you've turned off the tap upstream. We usually describe that as like, if you've got a puddle on the floor, you can mop it up or you can turn off the tap. So we're trying to turn off the tap instead of just spending the rest of our life mopping. Yeah, and that's what happens for a lot of people that get on repeat prescriptions. You know, I'm assuming you know you're 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 continually mopping up the puddle, puddle yeah, rather absolutely. than kind of going to the root cause. And I'm assuming actually a lot of things that we kind of label as a specific condition, that's not the thing that's necessarily causing it. So in the in the not if we take something, well, yeah, yeah. So if we talk about eczema, for example, it's not eczema eczema is a result of something going dysfunction, on mast cell activation food reactions exactly so you can use a steroid cream and it's you know functional medicine is not an either or thing right it's not yeah. saying that you shouldn't use prescription medicine or that prescription medicine is bad i've just knocked my microphone over twice <laughs> so i gotta stop talking in my head um it's that you can use prescriptions to get relief from your symptoms because sometimes that's incredibly important. Sometimes you will need a, an antidepressant in order to function in your life. Sometimes you need um, a, an immune suppressant because your symptoms are so bad that you aren't functioning. Um, but it's about having more tools in the toolkit than that. If that's your only tool, then you're just spending the rest of your life mopping the floor. So we want to have relief from symptoms and we also want to do what we can to do something about why the symptoms are occurring in the first place. So for somebody with eczema, we want to be looking at their gut health. We want to be looking at their food reactivity. We want to be looking at their histamine reactions. We want to be looking at their stress and their levels of trauma and their neuro priming um, around their stress responses. There's lots of things. We want to be looking at their nutrient levels. Do they have enough fatty acids? Do they have enough ceramides? Like that, you know, instead of just thinking about how do we suppress the symptoms and get relief from that, we want to be looking at the health of the skin and the access that the skin sits in because there is a gut, brain, skin access. Um, and when there's dysfunction in one area, then it creates dysfunction in the other areas as well. I think what's really difficult for, for, for people if they're kind of starting out on this journey, and we get a lot of people who kind of arrive at this podcast because there's something going on, right? They're not feeling well. They've done some research. They've stum stumbled upon the podcast. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the challenges is that it can just feel kind of completely overwhelming because it you're is, thinking yeah. to yourself, um, uh, in some ways, a prescription is so much easier just to get your head around, right? I go to the doctor, they tell me what to do. Yeah. When you start first start working with 
clients what if let's take the analogy of 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 being a a, a personal trainer right you don't just get people in the gym and get them slinging weights. There's like work to be done to kind of create some kind of early foundations to kind of work out where you're going. Mm -hmm. If someone's kind of listening to this and they're really early on that journey, is it best to um, start cleaning up your diet, removing foods, change what you're putting on your body, all of those sorts of things? Or do you see much faster process when people just go, right, I'm going to partner with somebody, I'm going to get tested, I'm going to get the data, I'm going to you know, where is the best place for people to start? It's a good question. And it's, there's not really a, a black and white answer for that because each person is going to have their own, their own best journey. Um, some people will react really, really well to just tidying up their diet, to doing what's obvious, right? If you are eating McDonald's three meals a day, or if you're not eating breakfast and not eating lunch and you're having an Indian takeaway every night and you drink you know half a bottle of wine or three beers at the end of the day right making basic changes to your diet so you're having breakfast you're eating vegetables you are eating protein you're balancing your blood sugar you know doing the things that are obvious are going to make a really big difference um, so I say this thing all the time, which is in any case, and I work with some very, very complex cases, and I also work with some things that are really much more straightforward. Um, and in both of those things, and all sometimes, especially with the complex cases, I say this thing, which is in medicine, there is a saying, when you hear hooves, first look for horses, then look for zebras and then look for unicorns, right? Don't jump straight to unicorns. If you're sitting in your living room and you hear horses, I mean, if you hear hooves clopping past the window, if you look out the window, do you expect to see a zebra or a pony? You know, you have to do what's obvious first. Yeah. Um, don't, and a lot of people want to jump straight to the fancy thing or they want a magic bullet. But actually the way the body works is common sense <laughs> and and usually you have to do what's obvious first so if you're stressed up the wazoo if you are eating really well but your levels of stress are really high all the time you're in a terrible marriage or you really hate your job right then broccoli is probably not the answer right you you have to have some common sense <laughs> Um, approaches to things, right? You need to manage your stress and you need to have a think about what do you need to change in your life. Um, so some people have the ability to do that for themselves and then other people need some help with that. And so one of the things that I do when, when I'm seeing somebody for the first time, especially with a, if you've had symptoms for a while, if this is a recent onset of symptoms, then you may be able to work it out for yourself. Um, and if some things are obvious to you, if you are just eating McDonald's and takeaway all the time, and you are, it's going to be obvious that you need to start cooking for yourself and making common sense interventions. And that's probably something that you can do. But if you've been having gut problems for 10 or 15 years and they don't really change um, or it's very difficult for you to pinpoint, you know, if you make this change or that change, sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't help, which is really common with gut symptoms, then you probably do need to have some stool testing, some breath testing, you know, have somebody walk you through your history and help you pinpoint 
where to make the changes because there is nothing more frustrating than reading things online, trying this person's gut program, reading this book, trying that supplement program that's in the book and just going round and round and round and round in circles. Mm. And I see people spend a lot of time and a lot of money um, doing things that are theoretically the right thing but are not the right thing for that person. Yeah, or in the wrong order. Or in the wrong order. Wrong order. The right order changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> and just just looping back around to, to where we sort of we started the conversation, which was this idea around the kind of 20% kind of eating gluten and 20% not, because I think that's a really interesting thing for people listening to this about whether you should or shouldn't have it in your diet. So... <laughs> That's interesting, right? Firstly, it's the quality of the gluten. It's not just about having it, but it's kind of where you get it from. Mm -hmm. But that that 20% that you were talking about, are we talking exclusively there about people that are celiac? Or are we saying even some people that aren't celiac for perhaps the makeup of their bacteria, uh, what's going on, are there certain people that actually just should be avoiding gluten? Right. So remember that gluten is a protein. So when I'm talking about 20% shouldn't be eating gluten, what I'm talking about is immune mediated inflammatory reactions to gluten. So celiac disease is somewhere between one and 3% of the population. So the numbers are a bit unclear. Um, it was thought to be 1% for a very long time. And now it's probably between one and two or 3% of the population. But then you have a much larger chunk of the population, which makes up the other kind of 17%, which have what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, NCGS. Um, and the difference between those two is subtle but very specific. So with celiac disease, you have a very specific type of damage that is done to a structure in the small intestine called the villi. So when you have celiac disease and you eat gluten, gluten triggers your immune system to start napalming the villi in your gut. And to have celiac disease, you have to have that type of damage. But celiac disease is not principally a disease of the gut. Um, it is a systemic inflammatory immune-mediated autoimmune disease that affects the brain. It attacks and damages the brain. It attacks and damages the skin. It can attack and damage any tissue in the body as well as the gut, right? To be celiac disease, it has to affect the gut, but it can affect and does affect every other tissue in the body. The reproductive tract, endocrine system, neurological system, skin, everything else, cardiac, everything else. So non-celiac gluten sensitivity is also immune mediated. It also is inflammatory. It also affects every and other tissue in the body. So you eat gluten, your immune system causes inflammation. That inflammation can affect your thyroid, can affect your muscles, your bones, your joints, your brain, your skin, your eyes, everything. But with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you don't have that characteristic gut damage. And with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it can be autoimmune, which is one part of your immune system, or it can be not autoimmune. It can be cellular, which is a different part of the immune system. Um, so both of those things are pro-inflammatory. They can affect every tissue in the body. With celiac disease, it has to affect the gut in a specific way. Now, with, ce with celiac disease, you can test for it, right? There is, there is a literal test for 
NCGS. Uh -huh. uh, I'm assuming it's not as simple as that. It's definitely not as simple as that. <laughs> and the, the gold standard of the test actually is if you eat gluten, you have symptoms. You take gluten away, the symptoms go away. You reintroduce gluten, the symptoms come back again. Right. That is actually still in the medical literature, in the conventional system, the gold standard of understanding whether or not you have a problem with gluten that's immune mediated, yes or no. Yeah. Um, but the other thing to understand is you can have immune mediated problems with gluten and also be having gut mediated issues with wheat because wheat and gluten are in the same food. <laughs> so you eat a piece of bread, you eat some pasta, you're getting the gluten and you're getting the fructans. Yeah. So people with celiac disease who have really severe problems, immune problems with gluten might have zero gut symptoms and in fact the majority of people seven out of eight people with celiac disease don't have constipation diarrhea bloating distension yeah. pain no gut symptoms at all even though their gut is actually being napalmed so where it gets really complicated is is that you um you may uh, so you remove gluten. So for some people, they remove gluten from their diet. They feel slightly better. They bring it back in. They feel slightly worse. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say that's NCGS, but what that might be is actually your digestive capacity might be quite low and you're not processing food properly. So actually, if you removed gluten from your diet, worked with a practitioner, bolstered your gut lining and your digestive capacity and your stomach acid levels and sorted out some dis your and your dysbiosis in the gut. Is, yeah, it's the main culprit for gut symptoms associated with gluten-containing foods is the microbiome. But, but in, in some ways, this is almost a brilliant exercise in showing how ridiculously sort of actually complicated it is. But perhaps there is a, a, a simpler kind of way to look at it is just to say, look, when you're starting out, the easiest thing to do is just strip the diet back as, as just an absolute blanket level. And do you start to feel better on a daily basis? Are you burping less? Is there less bloating? Is there less pain? Do you have more energy? Those sorts of things. Because in some ways, it's like you need... Um, you, 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 you need some, we're like very reward based as human beings, aren't mm -hmm. you? We need some kind of feedback. It's like going to the gym. Yeah. If you went to the gym every single day and only after a year overnight, suddenly bang, it worked. It would be so deflating. But yeah. the nice thing is, is that you get up one morning after three weeks and you're like, oh, like my... Something feels Stomach different. I feel Something better. Feels, my yeah, my it's like waistband gradual. isn't as tight or I have more energy today or there's, yeah. Yeah, there's a quicker reward. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But for a lot of people starting out, maybe a really just great thing is, is just uh, stripping back the diet slightly, which isn't an easy thing to do, right? Taking out some, some uh, gluten, perhaps removing kind of dairy early on, um, trying to remove maybe some processed foods. I think a real challenge for a lot of people is is 
understanding what is left when you remove those foods. Because the basic thing is lots of people don't actually understand what gluten is and what it is in. But the challenge with that is, is that people aren't just going to eat boiled fish for a month. Mm-hmm. Like, how, what, what is your kind of advice to people? Because you must see so many clients. How do you not overwhelm clients when you're trying to remove foods out of their diet? So it depends. So depends on where people are starting. So some people can cook very well and they like food. Um, and they enjoy the process of preparing food. They like thinking about food. They like food admin, right? The, the shopping, the cooking, the thinking about it. They like the flavors and the textures and they like to try Thai food and they like to try Indian food and they like to try Moroccan food. Some people do not like anything about food, right? They don't Mm. like to be in the kitchen. It's boring. They haven't been brought up around food. They prefer bland tastes and textures. They don't like spices, um, and they don't also have any kitchen skills. They can't chop, they don't chop, they don't know how to boil water. Like it's, so it depends on where people are starting from. And, and we got to start where they are, right? So sometimes we're adding in before we're taking away. So if somebody is eating an entirely processed convenience um, life, then we're starting with, okay, we've got to get some vegetables and some fruits in there. Can you chop up some cucumber? Can you open a bag of salad? Um, you know, we're teaching people how to eat and how to prepare food in a very simple way before we are taking anything away. You have to add in. And part of that is because you have to start adding in nutrition. There's a lot of nutrition that is missing from convenience foods. And we start by teaching people how to chew their food, which sounds like such a ridiculous thing, but it is such a fundamental, difficult thing to do. Chewing your food activates the entire rest of your digestive tract. It switches on your stomach acid, it switches on your bile, it switches on your pancreas, it switches on your digestive secretions, your small intestinal um, digestive enzymes, it switches on the muscles that move food all the way down the digestive tract. And if you can see undigested food in your stool, in the toilet, then it's not that your digestive enzymes are low. It's that you haven't chewed your food. If you can see corn in there, you haven't chewed the corn because your food should be unrecognizable by the time you swallow it, let alone by the way, by the time it's been through your whole digestive tract. Um, So if somebody is going to be really struggling with taking away gluten because it is everything that they eat, then we're not actually taking it away, right? What we're doing is we're adding and adding and adding and adding and building and building and building, building skills week on week, layer on layer, adding in color, adding in fiber, adding in nutrition, and then we're swapping, you know, and sometimes people need to do that. Okay, we're just going to do breakfasts. So we're going to change your breakfast this week. Next week, we're going to work on changing your lunches and we're going to swap out the things that you are used to in your lunch for gluten-free alternatives. Then we're going to do dinner. Other people need to do more cold turkey. They're not good with that um, phased introduction and they black and white and they want to jump in with both feet, in which case we jump in with both feet. Luckily, there are a lot more better options for convenience foods. So it is possible to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner without actually doing very much cooking at all. You can buy Mm. deliciously Ella processed frozen fruits, which are, you know, whole foods, nutrient dense, 
you know, we have it, we literally have a two week meal plan um, for people who cannot cook and don't prepare, you know, aren't used to preparing foods based on good quality things that you can buy in the supermarket that you can purchase easily um, so that it isn't overwhelming for people. Um, but the other thing to understand, if you've got gut problems, that healthy foods can make your gut symptoms worse, right? So if you've been eating a lot of processed foods, and this happens all the time, right? People take away gluten, they take away dairy, they start eating vegetables, and their gut symptoms get a lot worse. Um, and they're eating healthy, and they're feeling worse than they ever did before, because they're eating broccoli, and they're eating beetroot, and they're eating... Um, cauliflower and you know all of these foods which are really nutrient dense which have a really good um, nutrition profile which are known to be lots of avocado that ferment like crazy in the gut if you've got an unhealthy microbiome because the the real irony is that a, an unhealthy gut takes healthy food and turns it into toxic microbial metabolites um, so that's where you really need a nutritionist because you need somebody to help you make good choices that don't ferment in the gut while you are changing over your gut microbiome from an unhealthy one to a healthy one. And I think you can use a little bit of the gym analogy like that. It's like if you suddenly, you can't just go from zero to eating a load of fiber, right? You've kind of got to like train the body through small amounts to learn how to tolerate it and develop more of the bacteria that are used to digesting that. And um, I think that's where a lot of people become really frustrated. They start out on their journey, maybe they feel worse and they think, well, this is a load of nonsense. I'm just going to kind of quit at the first hurdle. Exactly. If you look like Woody Allen, you can't go to the gym and do the rocks workout. <laughs> You've got to start with one kilo weights. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's a lot of what we do is we teach people's guts how to tolerate fiber um, in small steps, because the reality is in the beginning, especially the thing you can't eat is the thing you need to eat. You just have to dose yourself up incrementally over time and be using herbs and spices and um, you know, polyphenols, which is a type of plant chemical found in the colors in plants. So purple foods and red foods and orange foods and yellow foods that don't ferment, but that do help to build a healthy microbial ecology in the gut. And we touched on it very kind of briefly earlier, but 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 I know that you work with a lot of clients that sort of arrive with um, unexplained illnesses, right? They maybe been to a doctor and... Um, that uh, they're not getting a diagnosis. They've done multiple blood tests. They've done multiple scans. They've tried all of these kind of different things and they uh, they don't feel well, but they can't mm. put their finger on. There isn't a kind of diagnosis on that. Mm. I'd be really interested to hear, you know, when, when clients arrive to you with those kind of things going on, where do you, we've, we've touched on this a little bit about a diet and things like this, but are there kind of quick quick things that you often work on that that, that are maybe more obvious than we we realize that can have big impacts on people? So, well, yeah, so there's two parts. I'm going to answer this in two parts. So the number one thing that will have the biggest impacts, no matter what the problem is, for every single person is sleep. Right? So mm -hmm. sleep is the number one variable for everybody, brain health, energy, gut health, immune-mediated stuff, infection-mediated stuff, 
doesn't matter what it is. If we can improve your sleep quality or improve the sleep time, then that will have a positive impact on your health, no matter who you are or what you're dealing with. Um, and so for somebody always- that, for somebody, let's, let's just dial in on that then. So somebody comes mm-hmm. to you, they either are not sleeping enough because they've got a busy work schedule or they have a disrupted sleep. Mm-hmm. What are the quick wins to help people get a better night's sleep? Well, that would be depending on the person, right? So Mm. are they having trouble with sleep because they're over-consuming caffeine and they don't understand that? Is it because they don't have balanced blood sugar? Their blood sugar is too high, they've got insulin surges, or their blood sugar is dipping out overnight, they're too low? Um, Is it because of stress hormones? Is it because of inflammation? Is it because of light? Um, So you need actually, if you're having trouble with sleep, we would assess that individually and then we would uh, you know put together a we sleep train actually i don't know if you have kids but everybody kind of understands that when you have a baby you actually have to teach the baby how to sleep you've got to sleep tra- sleep training actually is probably the wrong phrase because that has a very like leave the baby in the room and let it cry association but that's not really what i'm talking about but actually i spend a really large part of my clinical life sleep training adults (laughs) and teaching that person's brain how to sleep and giving it the nutrition and the sustenance that it needs to sleep through the night. Um, And that's individual for the person. It depends on their blood chemistry, immune system, stress levels, neurochemistry. Do they need supplemental support? Do they need light to typical type of light exposure, dark exposure, that sort of specific to the person but the other thing is the thing that I really do and especially with unexplained illness is I spend a very long time in the first appointment it's literally like two to three hours walking through somebody's life story we're going to start with what was going on in your mother's life when she was pregnant with you was she stressed was she happy was she smoking Um, what was happening in her pregnancy with you, what was going on in your birth, what happened in the first year of your life, how was your gut, did you have colic, were you given antibiotics, did you have ear infections. What happens in the first year of somebody's life is probably really relevant to the reason that they're sitting in front of me today, age 45. And then I'm mapping their entire life through from their pregnancy, their mother's pregnancy with them through to the current day. And we go through toxic exposures, infections, stress, different types of stress, chronic stress, acute stress, trauma, um, travel. Did you get barley belly when you were in Bali? Did you get deli belly when you were in India? Um, Have you been to Peru? Did you drink the water? Um, And so on and so forth. Were you a lawyer? Were you a doctor? Were you going through medical school or law school, only sleeping two hours a night and living on kebabs? Um, have you been a heavy drinker in the past? Have you played around with recreational drugs in the past? No judgment. I just need to know. Were your parents smoking? Um, did you have ear infections as a baby, urinary tract infections as a teenager, chest infections as an adult? And the patterns that come out of somebody's life story are the clue to understanding what their susceptibilities are now because two people with the exact same diagnosis or without a diagnosis they can't get a diagnosis they've got this complex set of symptoms and all their blood tests are coming back normal the place that we're going to start looking will be obvious from 
the patterns in their story. So going back and understanding, okay, this person has a really strong infection history. They're going to have much more immune reactivity and burden in their system from bacteria, viruses, molds, and yeasts. So that's the place that we're going to start looking. Somebody whose mum was a smoker, whose dad was a painter, who, um, you know, smoked a bit of weed and drank a lot during their university years, um, is going to have a much stronger susceptibility to chemicals and chemical reactivity. And the, the gut, even the gut mediated stuff is going to be more chemically reactive um, than somebody that doesn't have that history. So who you want, I call this the immunological lasagna because our health and our health issues are not a single event. Every event in the same way that one layer of pasta or one layer of meat sauce does not a lasagna make, right? To have a lasagna, you have to have a bunch of layers of things in a specific order. And it's the same thing with your health. Every health event that you've had from the time you were in utero is affected by what came before it and affects what comes after it. So understanding COVID is a good example of this, right? People who have long COVID have, or when somebody gets COVID or any infection, any viral infection, right? That infection isn't landing in a blank slate. That infection is landing in a body that might already have had some stuff going on below the surface. And then this event happens and it is the thing that breaks the camel's back. But because it was an event, because there was an event, we tend to be very focused just on that event as opposed to mm. everything that came before it that made somebody susceptible to having problems in the first place. So this is also true for people that have taken antibiotics and have never been the same since the antibiotics that have had a travel infection, you know, a, a traveler's infection. Weirdly, um, there's a, I have a lot of patients who have been trekking in Nepal, it's very specific, trekking in Nepal, had a gut infection in Nepal, never been well since. When someone says the word Nepal to me, when they're telling me their story, I'm like, oh gosh, <laughs> I know where this is going. But um, it's always, the focus then becomes that event. I've never been well since X. But in reality, we need to understand what did X land in? So that's the immunological lasagna. And then once we understand that, once I can see that, and once they've told that story, then I know exactly where we're starting. And I can say, okay, this is going to make sense. You know, here are your interventions because this is your body and this is your story. This is unique to you. So understanding where you've come from helps you understand where you're starting from now. So that makes sense. I think that's a I think that's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? When you think about people that you know, you see people that get like reactive arthritis after mm -hmm. getting really sick with a a virus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing about COVID. So many people would identify as having long COVID, but actually, I think that's a, an interesting way of kind of reframing it for some people of. You, there was something going on that wasn't quite right in your system that you weren't aware of. And, but you were managing, right? Your system was yeah. managing and you had enough compensatory mechanisms to keep going. And you, yeah. you normalized it. You normalized that level of stress. You normalized only pooping twice a week. It was just normal until you didn't think about it. But then when you got COVID, COVID landed into a system that wasn't actually robust and resilient. It was just hanging on. And COVID 
took the legs out from underneath the system and you, your compensatory mechanisms can't manage anymore. Because that's interesting. In the cases of long COVID, there isn't, they can't detect COVID still in the body, right? It's not like there is an ongoing infection, which is would be an easier way to kind of try and understand it. But but that's not how it sort of plays out. You get hit by it, yeah. you fight off the infection, and then your body is in a state of whatever that is. Infl- inflammation. And the immune system dysregulation. Exactly. There's five, so long COVID specifically, there's five specific mechanisms at play. But the sixth mechanism is what was already there in that body. So is that a person that had chronic viral infection? And it was fine. You know, they get cold sores and fatigue every now and then, but their body, their immune system was able to deal with it. Is that a person who had IBS and they'd had IBS for 15 years, but they were managing it? You know, they were taking some supplements and some probiotics or some Movacol they knew that they couldn't eat onions and garlic and so they just didn't eat onions and garlic. They knew that they could only have a couple of glasses of wine so they kept it capped at a couple of glasses of wine. Managing, right, all of these kind of managing little um, mechanisms that we just build into our life and don't really think about. But then when COVID lands, COVID changes your immune system, it changes your microbiome actually. COVID has a very specific fingerprint that it leaves on your microbiome. It changes your mitochondria, which is your ability to make energy, your, the inside of your blood vessels. Um, and one other thing, which is escaping, it creates neurological inflammation. So if you've got any weaknesses in any of those areas, even if you don't have, oh, and it reactivates other viruses in the system. So you might not have any COVID left, but now you're, you had chickenpox a couple of times and you're, varicella virus is reactivated or you've had uh, herpes virus and now that's reactivated um but it depends on like what was yeah what was in your system so somebody with you know i've seen a lot of people with long covid who had ibs for a long time and they were just managing mm. but then they couldn't get out from underneath covid because covid really changes your microbiome which is kind of wild because it affects the ace receptors ace2 receptors which are where in your gut. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And and when we think about autoimmune conditions, is it fair to say that the majority of autoimmune conditions, the the, the age the age that people are diagnosed generally seems to be later in life. Is that fair to say as a percentage? Depends on the autoimmune condition. Some autoimmunities right. like type one diabetes um, tend to be more diagnosed young. Um, others tend to be more diagnosed in sort of thyroid autoimmunity, for example, when there are major hormonal changes. So for women, that tends to be puberty, um, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and then again at menopause. Lots of, there's 80, there's 80 different autoimmune diseases, and then there's more than 150 diseases that have autoimmunity as part of the mechanism. Mm. And it's a little bit difficult to say, it's all, you know, you can never say it's always this, it's always that, or the trend is here or the trend is there because for each person it's so individual. Celiac disease can be diagnosed at 70 or 75 and the person didn't have celiac disease at 65. You know, there was an event that changed the immune system that led them to develop celiac disease at that age. Um, but autoimmunity develops for 10 to 20 years before it's diagnosable. There are stages of autoimmunity. I guess that's what I was kind of trying, sort of maybe being slightly biased with, but this idea that um, 
the 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 way that you're talking about uh long covid for example is that actually it's an event that happens that is actually almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back on a long compounding thing that your body's kind of just being cope, cope coping with mm-hmm. and i wondered whether for a lot of people who get diagnosed with an autoimmune condition whether it is it's just as simple as you're genetically predisposed uh, to it or whether over 15 to 20 years of either low-grade inflammation, poor diet, certain habits, those sort of things, and you're sort of almost, there's a big hole somewhere, and you're sort of stumbling around in the dark a little bit, and at some point you're going to drop into it. You just don't quite know when. Yeah, so both of those things are true. So the genetics, so to to develop an autoimmune disease, um, we call this the three legs of the stool. So you have to have genetic predisposition, you have to have immune system dysregulation and you have to have an environmental trigger of some kind. But the genetics around autoimmune disease are really, really interesting for me because when they started researching the genetics, and I'd like to also say I have a sister who has a PhD in genetics and her research was in lupus. <laughs> so she, I've, but actually our work is not related at all, but I've thought about the genetics of autoimmunity a lot and I did a lot of research into it because what she does is single gene theory, right? And that's, that's what they were looking for with autoimmunity is that if you have this gene, you will get rheumatoid arthritis. And if you have this gene, you'll get celiac disease. And if you have this gene, you'll get type one diabetes. And what they discovered was, so celiac disease has got 65 different genes that are related to it. Um, and what they actually found was that the the genes that are associated with autoimmunity are genes that change your immune system's reaction to the environmental triggers, right? So they predispose you to inflammation in the face of viral infection or in the face of toxic exposure or in the face of gluten for some people. Um, they don't predispose you to the disease. They predispose you to be more affected by your environment, a specific type of environment, Um, and therefore it becomes more complicated. So poor old type 1 diabetes is made susceptible by pretty much every single environmental trigger when you start to look at the genes. (laughs) So it's amazing to me that more people don't have type 1 diabetes because for all of the genes... Um, they're like type 1 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, type 1 diabetes. Um, so the genetics are complicated. We all have the genes. Um, and, and therefore, what are the other two, right? So we used to say it was genetics, environment, and gut permeability. You had to have a, a leaky guts. But in fact, once I started to understand that more, I realized that a lot of people have gut permeability and that creates changes in the way that your immune system um, communicates and rebalances itself. But actually that can also come from your lungs. It can come from any of your mucosal surfaces. So you can have leaky gums and teeth. You can have leaky lungs and sinuses and your nose. Um, You can have leaky skin. It doesn't have to be gut. So some people are very focused on, if I heal my gut, I will heal my autoimmunity. Um, but if you if your problem comes from your lungs, then healing your gut is missing the target. And the other thing to understand is that once autoimmunity has been activated, right, if a hammer breaks a window and you take away the hammer, the window is still broken. So 
you needed to have barrier permeability to make the changes in the immune system that predispose you to autoimmunity when you have the right environmental trigger. But if you heal that surface and you change that, um, the mechanism might still be activated. That cascade of events has still been activated and it is now self-perpetuating. So you can have an autoimmune disease and have a healthy gut and still have systemic issues around your brain and your nervous system or your thyroid or your, you know, depending on what else is going on. Yeah, I was speaking to a functional dentist a couple of episodes ago, ago a, 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 a guy called Mark who's out in the US and um, mm-hmm. uh that just is like opening a it just blew it just blew my mind it just and so many so many listeners as well like it just and in some ways it was almost and it sounds ridiculous but it's almost like frustrating in a way because it's like for so many people they do so much work and they're like right i've got this sorted and then it's like well hold on a minute there is a whole kind of other world of things to worry and kind of think about but i think for a lot of people in some ways the, the it's information overload actually the more you learn the more you understand that's, it's why it's why my patient, my patient population is absolutely information overload because we yeah. live in the information era right it's mm-hmm. there is more information than we can possibly process available at our fingertips and so much of it is conflicting should we be eating chickpeas or mm. are the lectins going to kill us should we be eating eggs or is the cholesterol going to kill us? Should we be eating an all-meat carnivore diet because plants have chemicals in them that are trying to kill us? Should we be eating a vegan diet because cows are going to, you know, kill the ecosystem? Like, it's absolutely overwhelming and people get very, very overwhelmed, which is why story, you know, people telling their story and understanding their story helps us to narrow it down to, like, one or two things and then the rest of it is relevant but not to you and not right now you have to be able to prioritize and to focus on what's the next step that you need to take and i think that's what's so exciting about kind of personalized medicine in a way and where it's kind of going to go in the in yeah. the next kind of 20 or 30 years when we talk about like postbiotics poobiotics like how we're going to be very very targeted but i think there's kind of like i think it's um uh that the the way to kind of combat how kind of overwhelming it is is that actually the brightest people that i speak to who are the most knowledgeable will also kind of go back to the basics of you really can't go to like just start with broadly let's say a uh, unprocessed mediterranean diet let's just use that as the basis and then go and explore things that are personal to you, right? Yeah. So if we strip everything back to a, to, a, to a Mediterranean basic diet, we're cooking everything from scratch, we're going to keep it really, really simple, low stress sleep, and yeah. there are still specific things going on, great. We can go and work with an IFM practitioner to, to, to look at those specific areas. Mm-hmm. But I think actually it's really interesting what you're saying is, is, you know, just because you get a microbiome test done and just because you pay a lot of money and go and see somebody, it, that that's not going to fix the problem. Yeah. It's a very, very holistic thing, which takes a huge amount of accountability yourself, right? You can only go so far. Yeah. And you have to, this is what I'm saying. It's, it comes down to common sense all the time. Like we hear so much about the gut and so much about the microbiome and it's very, very interesting and it is re- very, very relevant. But if you have asthma 
and you've been a smoker your whole life and you have hay fever and you get sinus infections, right? The, the idea that fixing your gut, now you're fixing the gut. If you have also got problems with your gut, <clears throat> then, you know, having improved function and improved immunity in the gut is going to have a positive knock-on effect on all of those things. But if you've got a chronic infection in your sinuses or in your lungs, then a stool test isn't going to tell you anything about that. So you can have a perfectly clean stool test because what you actually needed was a nasal swab. Mm. So, but yeah. if you and know again, that about I... yourself, right? If you are pooping every day and you don't have bloating and you don't have distension and you don't feel well, but your nose is always running and you have nasal drip and you get hay fever, then common sense tells us my symptoms are here. So maybe I need to start here. Think about here. Yeah. You know, what's, what's obvious is the question that I'm asking all the time. And I ask people to think like, if you just have a think about, think about this, don't overcomplicate it. What's obvious if you just think about the basics here. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the horse clopping analogy, doesn't it? Like, <coughs> if you feel like you're going deaf and you're still working in a nightclub seven days a week, <laughs> <laughs> a stool test might not be the answer it may not be the answer but but also like we're you know, it's so easy to give out advice and it's so so much harder to to heed it right you've lived with yourself for so long sometimes the things that are right in front of your nose That's aren't obvious true. and you do just need sometimes to stop like i find that all the time yeah. i'm giving my friends advice about their relationships and uh it sounds so sage and, and brilliant and then i'm like if only my own advice mm. well that's you know i a lot of my patients are nutritionists and functional medicine physicians because mm. i really strongly advocate that it is very difficult to see your own health clearly so again yeah. it can be really helpful there's so much that the individual can do and a lot of people are very switched on and very dedicated to researching their own health and understanding it and to being the captain of their own ship because frankly the conventional system is failing people and so they're having to take the responsibility for their own health on their own shoulders um and that can be i, I don't want to disempower those people and also you might be missing something obvious just because you're too close to it yeah and um, if you're listening to this episode today and something's really struck you uh you are suffering with an autoimmune condition you know somebody that is uh robin has a online clinic so even though she's in the uk and she's in america and she's hopping around all over the place um she's able to see clients from all over the world i think there's some really interesting stuff going on you can check out robin puglia.com and i'm going to spell that because you will not find it if you try and type it out so it's R-O-B-Y-N-P-U-G-L-I-A. And do not call her Robin Puglia like I did at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> I'm also on Instagram at Robin Puglia. Okay, fantastic. Robin, so great to have you on the episode. Thanks for making the time. We'll definitely do it again. I think we could probably dive a little bit deeper into the autoimmune um, stuff. So that would be great to do again sometime. But it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Ollie. And I look forward to next time. <laughs>